from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History for People Who Can't Afford Hamilton. Today, a special episode. We salute those men who ran for president on major party tickets and lost more than once. Presenting Even the Losers, Part 1. We thank you for your continued interest and ears for DB Comedy Presents the Electables. We are coming up to the end of all of the presidents that America has had up until this moment. But we're not quite there yet, and any help that you can give us, or any thanks you would like to give us, would be appreciated. If you haven't, please subscribe to DB Comedy Presents the Electables on whatever marketplace you are listening to this podcast. Also, don't forget to like and recommend so more folks can listen. If you like what you hear, please leave us a tip or a donation, if you will. Go to fracturedatlas.org and look up DB Comedy. Fractured Atlas is our fiscal sponsor. Any tip or donation you leave us is tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. Please keep supporting us because we are plotting life beyond the presidents, and we'd like you to keep listening. Thank you. Hello, DB Comedy Podcast fans. It's been a while since we've gone off cycle from our presidential runs, and uh, I don't know, something about Jimmy Carter and humiliating losses has made us come together to do a show that we've been kind of wanting to do for quite a while, and that is a show that focuses on all those men, and yes, they're primarily men, who actually made it as far as becoming the presidential nominees for their party and then not making it. The Buffalo Bills or the Minnesota Vikings of the presidential world, if you will. And so... I like the Lyndon LaRouche of the presidency. I mean, like, (laughs) they're always there. Anyway, so here we are, the regular gang. So, Joe here, as you can tell, uh, DB Comedy crew, jump in as the spirit wants. I am Paul, William Jennings Bryan's biggest fan. I'm Sandy. I'm Sylvia. I'm Tommy. And I'm a loser baby, so why don't you kill me, Patrick? <laughs> Ooh. And our Americanists. Team Henry Clay, Chelsea here. Uh, team not any of these guys. James. Well, Mr. McRae, you requested the floor to speak of our dear losers. So the floor is yours. So since this podcast is the electables, Chelsea and I are demanding that this particular episode be the unelectables because that seems only fair. Well, I mean, we have to, we'd have to throw Gerald Ford into that ring at that point. Oh, <laughs> he was elected to something. He was elected to the House time after time after time. He was elected Republican leader. And elected number one in my heart. <laughs> and then I, we have to make sure, as we're doing our discussion here, that we understand the two categories of the unelectables. There's the people who simply 
ran individually time after time after time, which represents a colossal failure of time management on their part, doing something that got them nothing and nothing and nothing but humiliation, but does at least represent an individual failure, which, of course, in a country of millions, there are bound to be some. But then there's the special group of people who were major party candidates failing multiple times. And this represents a failure of a very different sort, a failure of, you know, collectively, an entire half of our political institutions, of our political brain trust, to say, yeah, that guy who just lost, let's do that again. (laughs) So could the first group be categorized as having a humiliation kink, perhaps? Some of them may have. Some of them may have just been stubborn. Some of them, I'm sure, were just trying to make a point. Um, So these are basically, we can call them the Ted Cruisers, if you will. (laughs) I I do not want to compare Eugene V. Debs with Ted Cruz. (laughs) At least Debs had an ideal. (laughs) At least one person likes most of these people. Yeah, James, you talk about people who who ran and lost in a collective failure of the of the political in a spectacular feat of political incompetence. A major party nominated them again. Would you throw Richard Nixon into that list? That's a tough one. I mean, he did win two presidential elections. Um, he also lost a whole bunch of elections. I, you mm-hmm. know, I I think. Nixon, in many ways, kind of belongs on his own special list, um, of which really no one else besides Nixon can go on. Um, you know, ultimately, I think the the thing about 68, though, is the Republicans could have nominated just about anybody and probably won that election. And I actually think Nixon being the creep that he was probably ended up making that election closer than it really needed to be. I mean, if they if they nominated Nelson Rockefeller... That election's over right by June, um, but you know, which was amazing given that the the, the convention started in July. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like um, I would say, maybe Nixon is a man who was just wise enough to wait until his time came. The right. times caught up with Richard Nixon, but men like William Jennings, Brian, 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 were chronically behind the times, so that so it never caught up with him. I will give you the whole spectacular ineptitude uh, on Brian, if only because the Democratic Party seemed unbelievably inept at the time, because the Brian Interregnum, what the the Judge Parker, whatever his name is, whom they had nominated in 1904, actually got fewer votes than Brian. Well, Paul, I, I would almost counter your Nixon argument with... Uh, President Joe Biden I was almost say. belongs on this list as someone who's who ran three times, three times. and has only won this last. Uh, Although I think James one. did specify people who were who received the nomination. Okay. Maybe right. that was like, there's, there's different categories of he people. He just sort of ran for a fourth time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. honestly, if we're going to do that, then the obvious elephant <laughs> in the room is Donald Trump, who ran twice lost the popular vote pretty decisively twice, is prepared to run a third time as of the recording of this and of this episode, and could very well get the nomination a third 
time. Well, God willing, in uh, the 2025 version of the Losers, we'll ha- add his name to the list of <laughs> major party candidates who lost multiple times. Glorious. Hey, James. Yeah. You want to throw Andrew Jackson into your ca- into your category too? No, I don't think you'd throw Jackson in there, even though he did, you know, stick him. You know, he he had some electoral defeats. Um, but I think ultimately he really did know when it was his time mm-hmm. and he was able to, to, to use that to his advantage to secure two pretty significant victories. I mean, I mean, he, he trashed Madison in, in his, in his second, you know, major run there. And what was that? 1828. Yeah, um, he trashed up. Uh, that was Quincy Adams. Young, yeah. Not Madison Adams. Adams. Wrong son of the founding father. Um, <laughs> Wrong street. Yeah. Um, and then, um, you know, another person that you could kind of put in there would be Abraham Lincoln, right? I mean, who had an incredibly unfortunate run seeking political office uh, until he was elected to the U.S. Senate, which I may have been his first political victory. His first political victory on a national scale, I believe, was he was elected a Whig congressman. That's right. He was, in, and I believe it was like eighteen forty-six. Yeah, one one term because he he did the spot resolution, and they didn't like him for that. So then he mm-hmm. was. So why don't we set this up? We're going to go through this chronologically, and we chose for this episode a specific set of candidates to talk about. Can we quickly just go through who that list is, and then I absolutely I brought the list with me. Henry Clay, William Jennings Bryan, Bryan, Eugene Debs, Thomas Dewey, Adlai Stevenson, the second or the first, anyway, the Adlai Stevenson, the one of them, and Ross Perot. Oh, man. That is such a good list of, like, not winners, clearly, but, like, it's a good (laughs) list. Comedy gold. And so I learned, while researching this chapter of Even the Losers, that Henry Clay was a man of great contradictions. He nursed both petty grudges and grandiose ambitions, engaged in dubious tactics to attain lofty goals, and is remembered today as a fierce partisan, despite the fact that three different political parties nominated him for the presidency. Before you agree to collaborate with me on Henry Clay, how can a loser ever win? Do you have any questions, Ms. Bykowski? Uh, yeah. What exactly do you want me to do? I'm hoping you'd be willing to sing the 1844 Whig campaign song, Hurrah, Hurrah, the Nation's Rising with Henry Clay and Freelinghising for the audiobook. Sure. For 50% of the royalties. I assume that exorbitant figure is a mere opening negotiations gambit? Nope. It's my final offer. Take it or leave it. Why are you being so inflexible? Because unlike Henry Clay, I don't make compromises that I'll regret later. Goodbye, Dr. Nair. Should I have complimented her latest hair color? Hey, Chelsea, when did when did uh, Henry Clay run for president the first time? Was 1824 his first run? Yes, 24. In one of my saddest moments um, on this podcast, uh, it being a podcast, and we don't, are we are not able to offer our audience um, any visual aids. Please, dear listeners, Google for yourself. Except, don't use Google. Google 
uh, mines your data and sells it. So use any other search engine besides Google, but do an internet search for Henry Clay. He is, he will haunt your dreams and your nightmares. He is a terrifying skeleton of a figure. And I am very upset that I did any research about him because now he will haunt my nightmares tonight. One, we just have to mention that for whatever reason, the 19th century was a period of time in which the bizarrest looking people seem to be able to have success. John Calhoun, Henry Clay, John Quincy Adams. Abraham Lincoln, this freaking weird giant whose one side of his face is three times the side of the other side of his face. Um, I I don't know if we're just talking about Americans, but... um, Oh shoot! Oh, um, I mean, this is also when the Elephant Man ran for the House of Parliament in London. Yeah, I mean, as I've as I've said know. multiple times on this podcast, Zachary Taylor looks like you just left him out in the sun. Well, and I wonder, like, it, was this just because photographs were new and like people weren't accustomed to like having to like be presentable a lot of the time? Like, man, how bad did people look in the 18th century? We just don't know. Because the only time we ever saw them was when people painted their portraits, which, of course, so, they made so look better than okay, they so just looked. to clarify, yeah. so we're saying that yeah. in a world of ugly, physically ugly candidates, the fact that Henry Clay lost four straight times says something about how really just god-awful ghoulish he was. But I, mean, I, don't know, visually. I don't know how many people actually knew what he looked like, right? It's not like newspapers are printing these, like, skeletal images of Henry Clay. <laughs> He does look like he chose the wrong cup to be the the, uh, the Holy Grail. Now that I am thinking about mass media and the pre- and the role that it's played in the presidency, I would have loved to see Henry Clay on a national presidential debate. He feels oh. he looks like when he starts talking, dust comes out first. Yeah. <laughs> Although oh, that's, you guys- I mean. As an orator, that was one of his biggest strengths. He and Webster Calhoun were like the triumvirate of like amazing orators. And people did come and watch him. So he did put on quite a show. And that's something we will hear about, about William and Jennings Bryan and Eugene Debs, incredible communicators, especially live. That's one of the things that I think is so, uh, to me, this is one of the things that I love so much, though, about Henry Clay is he, on paper, like if he was putting in his resume for the presidency, he gets it, right? If it wasn't up to a popular vote, he gets it. Um, He is probably one of America's greatest statesmen. He serves his country in so many important roles in one of my favorite snubs though he oh gosh correct me if i'm wrong james i think it's monroe monroe offers clay the opportunity to be secretary of war and clay's like secretary of war that's a chump's job i want to be secretary of state and basically turns him down and john quincy adams is secretary of state and then I mean, you could argue that that's Henry Clay's shining moment with like the era of good feelings and the national road uh, when he's in in Congress. You could certainly argue that if um, if if Henry Clay had been secretary of state instead of John Quincy Adams, that he probably sails to the presidency uh, in, in, in 1824, because, I mean, for crying out loud, if John Quincy Adams could get elected, um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then, then you gotta think just that 
That Don was, Quincy uh, Adams gave us the Monroe Doctrine, though. He was the chief architect of that. Do you think Clay would have done something similar? I think I, I, all of the all of the John Quincy Adams historians out there are going to come at me and send me hate mail. Um, but <laughs> I would fun. argue that Clay and John Quincy Adams, even though they come from very different backgrounds, right? Um, Clay, born in Virginia, moves to Kentucky, where he really sets himself apart as kind of a backwoods lawyer. He doesn't stay backwoods for very long, though. But they both go backwards. Think... He was in Washington for fifty years. Hey, Kentucky <laughs> but... though, in Kentucky, come on. Well, and we forget Washington was the backwoods, yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> it's Washington not his fault. It was a malarial back... swamp. It was a swamp, period, not the woods. So. Yeah. The Beltway came to him. That's not his fault. <laughs> the Monroe Doctrine. It might not taste the same to us. It might not be of the same flavor. But it's a, it at least. I, I do feel like we would have gotten something similar from Henry Clay. Henry Clay, and again, I think the thing that makes him such an intriguing story is that, like, oftentimes it feels like he kind of, like, is the person that people say they're looking for in the president. Yes, he's inc- like he he's he's literally the definition of compromise, right? Yes, he is he is the great compromiser. He writes all these compromises. Yeah. He seeks common ground. He yeah. seeks the national interest, not the sectional interest. Yeah. Um, you know, he is you know the the Whig party is really kind of this weird, uh, you know, it's both pro-slavery and anti-slavery, northern and southern, kind of the rump of the old Federalist movement with some, I don't even you know not totally radical democratic republicans or 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 democrats as they become known after and jackson don't forget the don't forget the rabid anti-masonic wing of the Whig party well hey and, and, they recruited henry clay and he was like yeah no thanks yeah um so there's uh you know the Whig party is kind of a a compromised party now it has a whole bunch of different constituencies which ultimately was its undoing uh, but so Henry Clay represents this guy who should be palatable to a lot of a broad spectrum of American society, who has this distinguished political record, who has the skill in oratory, and then nope. Nationalist Christian. You, you radicals, radicals are destroying, destroying our, our country. country. Congresswomen, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, what is all this commotion? Is that any way for respectable members of our esteemed Congress to behave? Henry Henry Clay? What are you doing here? I could hear the squabbling reverberating through the halls of the Capitol, calling on me from the great beyond to help forge a consensus. As the great compromiser, my power summons me to help this august body find a path to reconciliation, as I did with the Compromise of 1820, the Tariff Bill of 1833, the Nullification Crisis, and, of course, the Compromise of 1850. Now, let me show you how a moderate centrist can achieve compromise and unity. Like Joe Biden? Like Kevin McCarthy? 
Oh, hey, I've got Kevin to see things no, my no, way. No, like a real compromiser, Henry Clay. Yeah. <clears throat> so, what is the issue? Well, these woke liberals want to take away our guns. Oh, my. Is, is that so? Mm -hmm. Of course not. We simply want sensible gun regulation. Gun violence has gotten out of hand, Mr. Clay. Mass shootings every day. In our schools, our churches, our shopping malls. Congresswoman Green here even tried to bring a gun into the Capitol. Did you ever hear of such behavior? Oh. My, well, <clears throat> there, there was that time Henry Foote pulled a gun on Senator Benton. It's a time-honored tradition. Yes, well, not all of the representatives in my day carried themselves with the decorum I did. And I suppose you think we should go around caning people in the halls of Congress again, too. Don't yes. answer that. Look, Mr. Clay, the guns today are nothing like the weapons in your day. We have to find reasonable ways to regulate them. We have to allow the good guys with guns to protect themselves. It's not a gun problem. It's a mental health problem. Oh, so now you're willing to fund mental health care? Don't be crazy. All, all right, look. Like a marriage, we all have our mutual faults. But the more you alienate and insult your opponent, the more entrenched they will become. But, but the, the Republicans Democrats won't listen to reason. reason. Republicans, Democrats, let's not get so tied to our parties, huh? Hey, I've changed parties more often than I changed hats. Well, you cannot argue with the Constitution. The Second Amendment is absolute, and it is here to stay. Ah, uh, yes, well, we've heard that before. My colleague, John Calhoun, also insisted on brandishing the Constitution as his rationale for justifying slavery. And Calhoun was as wrong about slavery as she is about guns. We can't give domestic terrorists unfettered access to weapons. We have to ban assault rifles. Now, 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 that, that is what I'm talking about. You dream of a world that doesn't exist. Statesmen have to deal with the world that does. Radical abolitionists actually made the lives of slaves worse by antagonizing slave states and making them even more radicalized. That is why I advocated gradual containment and emancipation to eventually export the free blacks to Liberia. Wow. Yeah, that sounded like a swell plan. And how do you propose to gradually contain gun violence? Uh, well, we can contain guns where they exist and then work towards gradual reduction of these weapons. And how are you going to do that? Oh, okay, okay, hear me out. We allow everyone to have all the guns they want. What? Yeah, sweet. But, 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 all the bullets must be made of chocolate. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Actually, I can get behind that. <laughs> no, no, no. What if we allow every state to write its own gun laws? So, Ms. Green, if Georgia wants to give every schoolchild a Glock, so be it. And, Ms. Cortez, if New York or Illinois want to ban guns in their state, they are free to do so as well. That sounds lame. But at least it'll keep the Supreme Court from knocking down all of my state's gun control laws. But 
course, if one of George's guns gets loose and is used to kill someone in New York, you have to give that gun back to its rightful owner in Georgia. Wait, what? Oh, well, passing the fugitive gun law may be the only way the pro-gun lobby will allow any gun restrictions to pass. It's what I had to do in 1850. If we didn't find a common ground, the fraternal bonds which happily united us would have been extinguished forever. The collision of opinion would have been quickly followed by the clash of arms. With my ability to bring bitter foes to the center position, I was able to quench those fires of divisiveness that threatened our young nation. Yeah. What, what, was, what was that? Oh, nothing, Senator. Your compromises were a raving success. The burning issues of the day were all put to rest in 1852, and the risk of Southern states threatening to leave the Union was never a problem again. But that was only the first time Clay ran. He runs three more times? 24, 28. He skips 32, mm-hmm. 36. Yeah. Because his Yeah, because his daughter passed away in 36. And then yeah, 44 is the last hurrah. So okay, let me let me ask an absurd question. Um and we may be able to ask this of all of our all of these candidates. Um, you know, as they said in the, the second Batman movie, do you honestly think you can win? <laughs> I feel like it gets less likely as time goes on. Like I said, yeah. I feel like you know, well, if again, Joe Biden, so that's <laughs> true. I mean, by 44, he's aging. He's yeah. Um especially for that yeah, era. Yeah. So and also, the, and, and there's the fact that he didn't really, again, his, he never really had had a political home to the extent that he does have a political home. It's clearly in the Whig Party, and the Whig Party is falling apart by the early 1840s. It, it really has lost steam as a, as a political force. Uh, of course, the fact that the presidents that did get elected from the Whig Party kept dying wasn't exactly a <laughs> great sign either. Kill you. Maybe that kill point, you Henry Clay should be glad he wasn't elected president as a as a Whig. That allowed him considerably greater longevity. And certainly, you know, that's and one of the things that we might say is that these people, all who were weren't elected president, are still notable American political figures. Oh, and yeah. perhaps and except certainly, for Thomas E. Dewey, <laughs> but we'll get to that. Um, you know, better known than many of the people who did get elected president, That's particularly in this area. Yeah. More people know who Henry Clay is than know who Franklin Pierce is. Or James so, K. Polk, who beat Henry Clay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, you know, I I don't know that a, a, a Clay presidency would have been, you know, that impactful, but certainly in the the roles that he did play, he, he was a significant political figure. So uh, 1844, correct me if I'm wrong, was his best chance. Because the country had just elected a Whig president four years earlier, and he died 30 days afterwards, and he had that ultra-catchy campaign anthem, Hurrah, hurrah, the nation's rising with Henry Clay and Freeling Eisen. Oomch, 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 oomch. And, and along comes this, this, this uh, sawed-off version of Andrew Jackson, who just cannibalizes Clay's vote and becomes the first dark horse Cannibal, isn't that poke? Exactly. Oh. <laughs> See, yeah. I, I don't know. The, the, 
the William Henry Harrison administration and then the John Tyler thing was just was bizarre. I mean, so Harrison gets elected. Tyler gets pulled into the thing, but isn't really actually a Whig at all. He's right. just like there for fun. Becomes the president. Let's everybody know, hey guys, I'm not actually a Whig. Not going to do any of your policies. I'm sorry. It's it's kind of like how could a Whig stand for the presidency at that point in 1844 and actually say like, yeah, but this time we're for real, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So that when your elected president does actually, the person who replaces him isn't in your political party is really awkward. And I, and I feel like that, again, I I think the party weakness is one of Clay's big, you know, if Henry Clay had been 20 years younger, right. And he had been able to kind of (laughs) rise with the Republican party. He's probably in after the civil war with no issue at all. I mean, right. Or, or he is Abraham Lincoln. Um, uh, yeah, they're still electing fan. weird looking people back then. I mean, come on. Honestly, like all of the weird, shitty presidents that we get right before Lincoln, I agree with James. Mm-hmm. And, and James, I had never thought of this again because, dear listeners, historians never engage in counterfactual. <laughs> um, but. I I love this alternate reality in which Henry Clay is a younger man in the years before Lincoln is elected, before 1860. He is honestly president at that point. But I also wonder, right, is, is that alternate reality uh, not a great thing <laughs> because the country doesn't exist at that point because Henry Clay isn't around at the early days of our new Republic brokering these compromises and putting forth a national vision for a statewide or a a nationwide infrastructure, right? He, he Mm -hmm. plays such a pivotal role in those early days of the, of the Republic that I, even me, the biggest Henry Clay fan I will trade a Henry Clay presidency in the 1840s or 50s for what we got from him. Yeah, and I think that's another reason that Clay's legacy, a lesser reason, but an important one. And Henry Clay is kind of the foundational figure of a lot of the ideas of like, well, the government should spend on infrastructure and the government should support education. And in fact, the government doing that is not an elitist ploy, but it's something that we use to bring the country together in some ways. Henry Clay anticipates the New Deal. So any any final words on Henry Clay as a multiple presidential candidate? Please say them now so we may move on. Three uh, separate mean, parties. It was with the, national, the Democratic, Republican, the National Republican, and the Whig Party. And Those some the of three. the times, the Whigs didn't even want him. <laughs> it's true. Uh, he was the first American to lie in state in the Capitol. So. Good. Also, I think this might just... every time he went to the House of Representatives. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think this might just be because I've been doing this podcast for too long. But uh, Cassius Clay, the actually the cousin of uh, Henry Clay, not his brother. Oh man, looks they identical. Close, huh? Looks identical to Stephen Douglas, and that's just a thing that I have to know now. <gasps> really? <laughs> I'm gonna look him up. It's like it's uncanny. It's like. <laughs>
here you are, Dr. Nair. All my suggested revisions to William Jennings Bryan, the biggest loser. Thank you, Mr. Moulton, but the chapter is entitled William Jennings Bryan, three-time loser. Uh, not anymore, it isn't. Hmm. I see that every time I refer to William Jennings Bryan as the great commoner, you've replaced it with a phrase like the bloated bloviator, the Nebraska numbnuts, or, my word, the man who put the fat in fatuous? Mr. Moulton, why do you want to turn my chapter on Bryan into a posthumous hatchet job? Oh, because I was born too late to administer a real hatchet job to Bryan. You uh, do realize that he was a pompous ignoramus who almost destroyed American democracy by injecting evangelical religion and anti-science fervor into politics, right? But he must have had some redeeming qualities if the Democratic Party nominated him for president three times. And that is the most damning evidence against Brian. A party split between Southern segregationists and urban ward healers could agree on one thing that they wanted William Jennings Bryan, Bryan, Bryan to be president. Bashing Bryan is my destiny. Well, as Bryan himself said, destiny is not a matter of chance. It's a matter of choice. Goodbye, Dr. Nair. He's just bitter about his lack of success. Unlike Henry Clay, who at least could lean on, hey, there was a different party every time and they wanted to nominate me, so what the hell? Brian does not have that excuse. Same damn party over and over and over again. In 1896, 1900, and 1908, in which he participated in the first rap battles unwittingly because <laughs> that's how his speeches were spread in 1908. His There were whacked recordings of his speeches and Taft's speeches, and people would gather to listen to them in the first DJ Smackdowns. Now, the, be the beginning of mass media, as we begin to know it, those collect those big That speeches. is a very tasteless thing to say when you concern concerning Taft and Brian, for that matter. <laughs> anyway, so, so Brian wasn't even a Brian wasn't even a was he elected at a as he a was, well, was he? He had been, I don't know if he was at the time of the 1896 when the big Brian, Brian, he had been, I am embarrassed to say that he came from Illinois. <laughs> he went to Illinois College and got a law degree at uh, some small school in Illinois. School, I think it was in the Chicago area. Oh, I am so happy about that, too. <laughs> he was the son of a fundamentalist Baptist white supremacist, Silas Bryan, in the southern Little Egypt area of Illinois. And since Illinois wasn't quite ready for him, he wasn't quite ready for Illinois, he moved out to Nebraska, changed from baptism to Presbyterianism because he had a he was a bit of an aquaphobe and didn't want to get dunked. <laughs> And after several, a few years as an unsuccessful lawyer, he decided to run for Congress as a Democrat, and he won. He did serve in Congress before he became a presidential candidate. Is that really the reason he converted? That's the only one I can find. <laughs> uh, Tommy, if you can he was explain never worried the difference. About 
the theological subtle difference between baptismism and Presbyterianism. All right. Well, I can help you out here because I was baptized Presbyterian. So Baptists believe in like adult baptism. It's a choice and that they like do it repeatedly as a right. There's all mm. those great jokes about Baptists hating dancing. Here's my favorite. It goes like this. There's a couple that's getting married and they are asking their Baptist minister, like, can they have dancing at the wedding? And he says, no, dancing's like very corrupt. And, and the woman's like, but like after we're married, we could have sex. He says, sure. You know, the Bible says be fruitful and multiply. And she says, we could, we could have sex on the table. He says, I guess he says, we could have sex standing up. And he says, no, actually that might lead to dancing. <laughs> Presbyterians at this time believe in predestination. They believe that God has already selected who will get into heaven. And it's a shockingly small amount. So it's not like everything in your life is, it's not like uh, you have no free will, but your free will kind of doesn't have any weight on what happens to you. It's God already picked, start a time. There's like 125,000 people. It's again, it's a shockingly low number for when Presbyterianism <laughs> Yeah, I don't think he chose Presbyterianism for doctrine. I just figured that if someone, that if he had to be repeatedly held underwater, that at some point no, someone was going to just not let him up. Yeah. But anyway, to, just, now that I've gone through yeah, I uh, think that, with, a, with an interesting... That interesting at all, yeah. Uh, no, I, th I think the main difference is Baptists, they talk like this, uh, and Presbyterians <laughs> talk like this. Yeah. So, but William Jennings Bryan had a speech, and um, it's not like there aren't traditions of politicians delivering speeches that catapult them into the stratosphere, as we know from Barack Obama. Um, tell us about, tell us somebody about the Cross of Gold speech. Oh, I guess I'll take that one on. So, this, <laughs> Thank you, James. This is an economic <laughs> issue, and we've talked about it when we talked about uh, Cleveland, the guy who actually got elected president. Um, McKinley. McKinley. Okay, to set things up. The Democrat Party in the late 1800s sucks, deservedly so, because they were, you know, in bed with the, you know, slave people, and now they're being punished, which, you know, for the once... Slave, the slave political, holding people. Um, and so they're having a really rough time reestablishing themselves as a national party in the wake of the Civil War. But by the late, by the 1890s, they've had a little success. They did get um, the one guy in there twice. Um, I, I'm also known as Cleveland. also known as Grover Cleveland. Also known as Grover Cleveland. I'm so they're coming along, but really they don't have a lot of support outside of no core support outside the Deep South. Well, and they're competitive in several other states uh, as, as a national party, including in New York. But a lot of that is like they have they have support in their, like this is the like the urban machine politics that's many of those urban machines are are set up under the auspices of the Democratic Party. Now, the West is a little bit of a different story because the West, yes, the Democrats have some support out there, but a lot of that is actually the the um, populist movement, uh, which has established itself as a politically relevant force here in the late 1800s. And this is kind of the crux of what's going on. So, but farmers have been struggling because they had been dealing with two big issues. One was low prices, for their crops, and this is part of the larger issue of deflation. So because the country is on the gold standard, the money supply was fixed, the amount of manufactured goods that was being produced was expanding every year, and so you had an imbalance 
between the amount of stuff that was being produced, which is very great, and the amount of currency that was available to buy that stuff, which was more or less fixed. And so if you have more stuff, then each little piece of currency that goes to chase that stuff becomes more valuable because it's rare, the stuff is not. And that leads to deflation, lower prices. And part of that stuff is agricultural goods, things like wheat, things like corn, uh, things like meat, beef. And so because of that, prices had been declining for agricultural goods in real terms. And as a farmer, that's a really tough situation to be in when every year the amount that you can get for growing the same amount of stuff goes down and goes down and goes down. The more they grew, the less that they made because everyone else was growing more. And so it just drove prices down. Great time to be a food, like processed food manufacturer, because man, your raw materials are at an all-time cheap rate. And because this helped out industry and and um, you know banks, which were happy to make loans for these to these farmers, knowing that as the farmers struggled to pay them back, they would appreciate in real terms as the debt became worth more and more. And this also, became... this is the time of the trusts at the yes. peak, and there is, of course, the cereal trust from the Kellogg Company, the National. Biscuit Company, a.k.a. the Cookie Trust. Which are colluding to keep prices down, which isn't helping anything. Uh, and so to be a farmer at this point in time was a very, very difficult economic situation. Part of the solution may have been to adjust the gold standard to include both gold and silver. I've always thought that this was... It's like getting like, you know, people are like the cross of gold speech. And it's like, imagine someone made a really, really excellent speech about how the in earned income tax credit should be increased, right? Like, how could this little wonky policy change that was not going to be a solution to all the issues that farmers faced possibly have attracted this much national attention? But I think J Ryan's political insight was to turn it rather from an issue of economic policy into one of morality. And that was what the process saw was. everything that way. It wasn't right. insight. It was just who he was. Well, and I think that was also Brian's downfall is that if you see everything as a moral battle, there's no room for subtlety, no room for detail. And compromise? <laughs> for compromise. And, you know, I think it, it, there's, uh, there's, um, Brian's political epitaph uh, right there. You know, no room for compromise, no room for subtlety, no room for detail. Or I think it was Mark Twain who said William Jennings Bryan is like the Mississippi River, a mile wide and a foot deep. Yes. Mary, must we celebrate my nomination in this godforsaken Chicago tavern? If the jackals in the press spot me, the headlines will say William Jennings Bryan is nothing but a, a man of the people. Two sarsaparillas, barkeep. But not too frothy. Mary, God-fearing Christian voters will see no difference between me and McKinley, that devious... <laughs> Devout Methodist. Willie, please, this isn't a church. There's no need for a sermon. Oh, thank you, barkeep. Uh, here's a gold coin for your trouble. Gold? Mary, that's a flagrant act of double... Generosity! Willie, must you be so incessantly virtuous? Oh, that's why I fear Mr. McKinley will defeat you in November. For all his ties to the Eastern elite and plutocrats like Mark Hanna, he comes off as more approachable than you. 
Oh, well then, shall I start smoking or drinking so that I should become more attractive to this unwashed mob of hard-working and- patriots enjoying a beverage after a long day's labor? Willie, you oughtn't to be so high and mighty about people's vices, especially considering how much you overeat. Mary, for the millionth time, I'm not fat, I'm... Big-boned, yes, I know. Please act less like a preacher and more like a president. Instead of coming off as some great bloviator, perhaps you could be a bit more of a great commoner. The great commoner. I like it. At least it refers to my greatness. Here, I shall try this new persona on the drunken reprobates in this pagan inferno. Hail, humble voter. I'm William Jennings Bryan, and I'm running for president. I hope you'll obey the voice of God and vote for me in November. Just a small glass of wine, please, Parky. Boy, boy, if it isn't the boy orator of the plat. I'm Malachi Malarkey, Chicago newspaperman and proud Irishman. I've a wee question, Big Willie. Your speech yesterday about the cross of gold. You aren't casting any sly aspersions on the Catholic Church now, are you, lad? Why, of course not, Malarkey. I welcome all voters, even if they practice sinful, ritualistic Romanism. Well, I'd like to thank you, sir. I hope we can count on your support. Mary, that man threw his beer in my face. You're lucky he didn't chase it with his fist. Well then, perhaps I shall have more success with this fellow who looks like a Teuton. Teutons? Yeah. <laughs> You're not having room to talk here, Brian. Ich bin Werner Schnitzel, and I grind meat for Herr Swift. Marvelous! We would love to tour the sausage-making plant. Oh, mein lieber Frau, you would not want to see how sausages are made. Herr Brian, your demand for inflation scares the scheisse out of laborers like me, who fear wages won't rise as fast as prices. Why should we vote for you instead of Herr Kinn? Because policies that benefit farmers, the very soul and spirit of our nation's agrarian glory, will benefit all Americans, even filthy, slum-dwelling immigrant scum. I hope we can count on your vote. Mary, these foreigners are nothing but... Fun-loving. Why, take a look at this young dandy approaching the bar. Oh my goodness, uh, yes, I'd like to meet your tailor, young fellow. I'd... Lady, my name is Willa Cather, and I'm covering your campaign for the Home Monthly. I know it's strange that I'm dressed like a man, but it's a man's world, after all. <sighs> Actually, it's God's world, technically. Mm, I've always admired a free spirit. Well, why deny yourself any gaiety? That's my motto. Um, sinful cross-dressing aside, I hope you can write fairly about me so that my message can reach your urbane, sophisticated readers in whatever... Rural Nebraska. I'm from Webster County. I'm just a journalist now, but once I write my novels, I plan to be the biggest thing to come out of the Platte River Valley. <laughs> Second biggest. Why, thank you, Mary. I'm only speaking the truth, dear. Tell you what, Willie. Don't you waddle back to the hotel and rest while I discuss your broad appeal with this charming young woman. Oh, that's a splendid idea. 
Miss Cather, I hope that my wife can convert you to our righteous path. Oh, I'm sure some conversion is about to happen. Ta-ta, Mr. Brian. Two whiskeys neat, barkeep. So tell me, Mary, what did you ever see in Moby Dick there? <laughs> Sometimes a girl is just helpless before an agile tongue. I'm living proof. I'm going to do a Paul thing and make an extremely provocative and probably unfair statement and let everyone debate it. William Jennings Bryan was the direct ancestor of today's evangelical right. I'm, I'm going to step in and say that I think he actually believed in what he was saying much more than today's <laughs> evangelical right. I'll, I'll give you that. this. He's maybe like a Falwell where I'm like, I don't agree, but you do believe this. But like I would say, everybody in the religious right today is uh, raking in more money than souls. And not a lot of them are running for office True. in the way that Brian did. And certainly none of them have ever, as far as I can think of in the modern era, become nominees have they not yet because we do but now we do know especially as in our timeline we're getting to reagan bush or <laughs> trump that there will absolutely be all kinds of bowing and kowtowing and wooing of that very vote so you may be right one of the differences of course is that evangelicals, wherever they stand, had nowhere near the amount of power that they ultimately got from the 1980s forward. Yeah, and I think that William Jennings Bryan is, is fundamentally actually talking about a group of people who, if not being actively oppressed, were being taken advantage of, legitimately taken advantage of by the powers that be. Like, and you're talking exclusively about farmers, not about Protestants, right? Exactly. But you know, the 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 poor farmers of the West were, a, I think, a legitimately disadvantaged cause. That that they certainly not alone in the country and being disadvantaged, and perhaps not uniquely disadvantaged compared to other groups, blacks. Chinese Americans at the time on the West Coast. Women, don't forget it. women. But they were being, you know, they were being taken advantage of by the powers that be. And so the, I think that they had a cause to argue that was worthy. I also think that their inability to win speaks to their oppression. Because whereas the religious right of the 1980s and 90s, despite all their talk about how they're being oppressed, actually has a decent bit of money to you know go behind them these guys really don't and they had silver mine owners contributing to the cause yes and i'm sure that helped but i'm sure that that <laughs> paled in comparison to the massive established money that the bankers the trusts the industrialists all could line up behind folks like mckinley so like it's I think in some ways, yes, Paul, I don't I don't necessarily disagree, but I also think that there's a kernel in there that's the beginning of perhaps a more modern populism that we see on the right today uh, against kind of established elites. Oh, uh, especially. <laughs> yeah, I'll put it this way. William Jennings Bryan was a populist demagogue trying to rally support for oppressed white people. Does that sound familiar? 
I, I think I agree with James in that, in that it's a yes and it's a no, right? I think William Jennings Bryan is advocating for a populist sort of economically marginalized community, which rings really similar to the State of the Union address that we just heard last week, right? A lot of those were kitchen table economic issues put forth by a Democratic president that do significantly continue to marginalize already marginalized communities, uh, you know, against large commercial and corporate elites. And, And so I think it's a yes because it does, it is couched in this sort of like distrust of government and corporate elites, which rings very Republican uh, in this day and age. But I think it's in its kind of standing up for the little man, economic populism. Because and- because they needed to be pushed back against. The trusts were awful. They needed yeah. a counterweight. And eventually, first with Teddy Roosevelt, and then with his cousin further down the road with his Franklin, they got it. They got they got pushback. So maybe because Teddy question... actually took all. Teddy stole all of Brian's good ideas. It's true, though. We're talking about William Jennings, Brian, Brian, Brian. <laughs> championing the economically disadvantaged but all of those economically disadvantaged lived in the midwest and farmed he was no friend to labor yes and there's another group that was being exploited well Well, that's okay he was he was a campaigner uh after leaving office for uh a few like pro-labor things he he advocated for the eight-hour day the minimum wage and uh a little bit for for his suffrage and i'm not going to let that segue get away from us because if labor needed someone to run and to represent their interests here comes another guy with some uh some parallels actually to brian in some ways Uh, uh, and sorry were you about to say the name i don't want to cut in yeah go for it no you say it tommy Eugene V. Debs. Oh, <laughs> yes. We keep this joke going because I, I I had only learned this recently doing a little research before this recording, which was uh, he sort of jumped off from he, he so he gets out of um, we'll go over his whole life in a second, but he gets out of jail in 1895. This is over the Pullman strikes and uh, is supporting William Jennings Bryant by 1896 and is like really turned by his cross of gold speech. And then when he loses, Debs is pretty much like the future of socialist policy does not lie in the Democratic Party, as all we've had for a long time is Cleveland. And then Brian, a bunch of different times, not working out. But that's where we get, yeah, our man and friend to labor, Eugene e. Debs. Who ran Indiana, for the presidency from jail. Yes. Not that to me is the absolute best. It was one of the other times he went to jail. So you see, Mr. Spears, that Eugene Debs' campaigns for president could charitably be called quixotic. Most people took the possibility of electing a socialist convict to the White House as seriously as... As seriously as you taking the restraining order I took out against you? Oh, I wasn't notified of the legal decision. It's a joke, Dr. Nair. 
I'm a comedian, remember? Anyway, I'll contribute to Eugene Debs. Have you heard about the Lonesome Loser? Chapter, if you point out the irony that the least ridiculous presidential candidate from Indiana was also the least successful. Well, I suppose I can make an oblique reference to that sentiment if you help promote my work by making a book talk video for a song about Eugene Debs. What, you mean like this one? They make us call them job creators and gravel at their feet. I think they'd all look better with their heads stomped in the street. I'm tired of these Republicans, they're the real dirty reds. I think it's time we Hoosiers went back to Eugene V. Debs. Do you have anything a bit more funky, shall we say? Something that will trigger a stampede to the dance floor. Dr. Nair, don't you think a folk song is a little more appropriate to the subject? That's how union organizers like Debs tried to win hearts and minds among working people. Well, you know what George Clinton said. Free your butt and your mind will follow. Goodbye, Dr. Nair. I still think he'd make a better model than comedian, but that's just one man's opinion. Yeah. So what are all the times, remind me, what are the, all the times that he ran? Uh, he, he actually, he ran five times. So yeah, was, 1900, 04, 08, 12, and 20. And for those of us, I w we will try to put this somewhere, but I found a campaign button for Eugene Debs. It says, for president, convict number 9653, which to me this. is just so badass. <laughs> I want this. He was yes. in jail, by the way, that time around, because during uh, World War One. He was advocating resistance to the draft. I don't want to specify. He didn't say, like, burn your draft card or flee to Canada. He was just speaking in Ohio, basically saying, like, the draft is unjust and we shouldn't be in this war. And, you know, there's, and all of the things you could normally say about an American war. They're sending poor working people. And you're like, yeah, that's all. Always so true. So he spoke the truth about war and it couldn't get him any traction, eh? <laughs> no, it, well, the, I mean, but that's the thing is the crowd enjoyed it, but the Supreme Court did not. <laughs> uh, so he lost in so he lost in a federal appeals court and then uh appealed it to the supreme court and they were like no absolutely not it's basically that you can't speak out against the federal government during wartime on a personal level Debs was not really a firebrand was he he was just kind of like a nice mild-mannered guy he could deliver Debs. a stem winder when he wanted to don't yeah. get yourself he he was a strong orator and he could he could get the blood pumping but he wasn't a let's burn down the country to create communism guy. Right. I mean, he was, yes. he was a politician. He wasn't a revolutionary. He believed that the popular forces of labor United were strong enough to make change through the existing democratic system. And I think, you know, one of the other things that's so notable about Debs is he himself is uncomfortable with being a leader, which is something that we have talked about, um, a lot with other past presidents um, and both like actual felt, but also kind of like manufactured, right? Oh, I don't want to be a leader or like the country is calling me to be a leader. And I think it was very genuine for Debs. Yeah. He chose to rise to the position that he did because he saw gaps in the political system that weren't being filled. But he was very uncomfortable himself as a leader, as a political leader. 
Yeah, he was he was a union organizer, so I think he was not used to that level of power or notoriety. But he, uh, I mean, I would I, I got to point this out. He he really earned his bona fides there. He first works cleaning engines in a railroad at fifteen, mm-hmm. and then later, like within two years, is working as a fireman. So, by the way, any teenager could get any job at this point in time. He's <laughs> like. I also also, while we're on this idea of Debs being a sort of reluctant leader I know every once in a while we read quotes from famous speeches and this one was my favorite if you I do not want you to follow me or anyone else if you are looking for a Moses to lead you out of this capitalist wilderness you will stay right where you are. And I am I am going to always think of capitalism as this capitalist wilderness. Mm. Yeah. Because that's and how he, it feels. He is like, yes. he's a very noted speaker, um, which is interesting. Because again, you're right. Like he's not, he's not a natural leader. He's a great speaker though. Yes. And he organized with them for all sorts of demonstrations. I mean, the big one is the Pullman, uh, the Pullman strike, I guess. That later turns into Pullman riots. <laughs> he goes down on that one, by the way, for like obstruction of the mail. He's it's, a union. You never mess with the mail. Yeah, that was a federal although, charge. Yeah, you can't mess yeah. with the mail. Man. Although, although, fun uh, additional tie here between uh, Eugene Debs and William Jennings Bryan. Uh, Debs's lawyer for the Pullman strike uh, arrest was Clarence Darrow, <laughs> who opposed. Uh, uh, William Jennings Bryan at the Scopes trial. You can't well, really talk about the early 20th century without somehow... William uh, Jennings Bryan uh, is in there someplace. Yeah, Clarence Darrow just gets in there somewhere. When was America most ready for socialism? Uh, that in 1920 when he was in jail. Well, it was hmm. the 1912 election was when he got tw- 6% of the vote. And that's when he beat Taft in Florida. I'm sorry. I thought he received his highest in 20. But no, no, I think 20 good. got his biggest uh, vote count. I don't know what that was in terms of percentage. Yeah, so people also, the first... at Warren Harding and James Cox is like, to hell with this. I'm going socialist. I can't blame them. Yeah. Right. By the way, if this, I'm sorry, I just, I'm, I'm going through an article and I just read this line that I must read out loud. <laughs> you know, the size of the vote is nevertheless remarkable since Debs was at the time a federal prisoner in jail for sedition, though he promised to pardon himself if elected. <laughs> it's a great thing to run on. Honestly, see that again. you know what would be a better power move is to not pardon yourself when you're elected. And you're like, right? I'm just going to run, oh, I'm going to yeah. run the, the cabinet meets from in this the yard. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I would like, I would love to have a state of the union, but I am in solitary right now. <laughs> I would love Actually, to come to your house, but you have to come to my house if you want a state of the union. I'm sorry. You have your big 10 party. Here's the big house party. Hey. That would have been a horrible precedent that would have given Donald Trump all the excuse oh. that he needed. And it never happened again. Yes, <laughs> yes because he needs excuses for his actions. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure Trump is constantly paying attention to what Eugene B. Debs did on the campaign <laughs> I'm sure Donald Trump knows who Eugene B. Debs is. Yeah. He he Trump thinks he's alive still. I, I bet he thinks Eugene B. Debs is the guy who works for him. Yeah. It's like me, uh, Eugene B. Debs, Frederick Douglass, we were all getting drinks. <laughs> As, 
as we're talking about Debs, there's a sort of parallel to Clay in that he is in what we have to call kind of a minor party. Now they do well in terms of vote counts, but they do all right. They, there's I can't imagine there's any real sense in Debs's world that even though he's running, he's actually going to win, which leads to the potential of, and we often see this, certainly we see this with candidates running for nominations, that they're there to advocate more so than to try to win. Is that something, I mean, I, I feel like that's something that Debs falls into place of. that well, that's, that's sort something of... they say after the fact when they don't win and just say well i never really thought i could win i'm just here to get these particular subjects or issues in front of the american people i i think we can say to an extent or i think i would argue that eugene debs actually meant that because he ran from prison and it's very unlikely you went from prison. <laughs> yes right like... i mean this is something i think we're gonna be it'll be interesting to talk about when we get to ross perot but again the modern example is bernie sanders who i think ran <laughs> more or less as a protest candidate at least at first against hillary clinton and at some point he and the campaign kind of went wait a minute we might actually be able to win in the nomination I would say, yeah, if Eugene Debs is maybe running to promote the idea of socialism to a wider audience, Bernie Sanders is doing that for the idea of Killer Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so Debs is part. He you was the, word he, the, the the name of the party was the Socialist Party, of the Workers' Party, or the Socialist Party of the USA. All time. Okay, so there are. Uh, he had run for the three. Social Democracy Party, the Social Democratic Party and uh, the Socialist Party of America. Yeah. The different iterations of socialism. They did kind of keep splitting and, and uh, forming. As, so, as socialists are wont to do. Well, but, but they're all the same delicious flavor of socialism. <laughs> I feel like one of the problems and why they have to keep reforming parties is that they get rolled in with a lot of other stuff like anarchists. Anarchists, yeah. yeah. And because there's, a and there's a, that little that little bit of infighting that tends to happen where the infighting becomes far more important than the overall goals. Or maybe I'm generalizing. I don't know. <laughs> he does, uh, Debs does say, uh, to get back to the question of whether or not he actively thought he was going to win, mm -hmm. uh, he does say that he, he sort of distrusted the political process because of the, the amount of like deal-making and horse racing involved. And so he, I think he saw his uh, campaigns more as a way to galvanize and unite the workers to try to build a greater worker coalition. I yeah, I would agree. I think that was. I think the idea was always that they could like somehow reorganize in a way that would like expand the tent big enough to get more people in. Also, fun fact: his uh, his wife, not a socialist. Didn't yeah. like him being a social activist because it threatened her sense of middle class respectability. Yeah, what's her? <laughs> I would do it. Uh, Kate, Kate Debs. Kate Metzler. Kate Metzl. Uh, yeah, they talked about that in a biography article I was reading about him. That like a big defining feature was his wife being like ashamed of this like huge career he's had. I wonder if that has anything to do with his resistance to leadership. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? Or wanting to campaign or drum roll, 
rim shot, get ready, be in prison. Yeah. But can you imagine her being the first lady? <laughs> I mean, yeah, can you imagine a first lady actively hating the president? <laughs> I feel like she would have been a great first that. lady, though. <laughs> that has occurred, so it's not a new phenomenon. Right? I, uh, he, he probably shouldn't have taken any bowls of ice cream from her if he'd become president. <laughs> That's a callback, y'all. That's a callback uh, to Zachary DB Taylor. Comedy, once again, would like to say that we do not actively uh, endorse calling various first ladies assassins because <laughs> nothing has been proven yet okay before we go i would just mm -hmm. like to say uh george pullman rotten hell in the rot room. in hell when i was an ap uh government student in my senior year we were very poorly prepared sorry mr Midorsky, we were very poorly prepared if you're listening we just lost this. one listener when we were preparing to go into the testing room, we, a group of us who were overachiever type A folks who were disappointed that we were not so prepared, we decided that we were going to, if we couldn't answer the essay questions, we would respond to a fake prompt, which was, why is Eugene V. Debs the most important Supreme Court case that has ever been heard? <laughs> I, I even I'm not sure on this argument, but go ahead. And why? No, that's it. It's that's why it's funny because <laughs> Eugene V. Debs is not is a human person, not a Supreme Court case. Oh, V. Debs, no. got it. <laughs> that yeah. is good. Henry oh. Debs is the actual court case. That's why I was like, wait, do you mean that? <laughs> I wanted no. to say, by the way, on a last, I wanted to say Henry Eugene V. Debs. You know. Indiana gets made fun of a lot for our contributions to the uh, to the executive branch. Your Dan Quayles, your Mike Pence's, your Benjamin Harrison's. But when we sent you someone good, you didn't vote for him. So like, oh man, kind of on you. You're right. You reinforced our like our sending you a Pence type. <laughs> That's You'll true. Never get another Debs again until John Mellencamp runs for presidency. <laughs> Twenty twenty eight, baby. Hi, everybody. It's Tommy, DB Comedy's resident Hoosier. I shit on Indiana a lot because I grew up there and it's one of the things you can do for fun that isn't meth. But today, I want to talk about the greatest Hoosier to ever run for president, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> no, no. Can you imagine? It's Eugene Debs. I'm excited to talk about Eugene V. Debs. And if you listen to anything else I wrote about my home state, you'd know that it's rare for me to back a Hoosier. But Debs is cool. His life sounds like a Johnny Cash song. He started working on a railroad at 14. He helped fund the IWW and organized the Pullman strike. He went to prison twice. And the second time he ran for president from his cell. And it was the fifth time he ran for president. His speeches are legendary. In his second trial for sedition, he represented himself. Here's an excerpt from one of his speeches to the court. I'm thinking this morning of the men in the mills and the factories, of the men in the mines and on the railroads. I'm thinking of the women who, for a paltry wage, are compelled to work out their barren lives, of the little children who in this system are robbed of their childhood and in their tender years are seized in the remorseless grasp of mammon and forced into the industrial dungeons, there to feed the monster machines while they themselves are being starved and stunted, body and soul. Men in mills, Children fed into a monster machine? 
This guy talks like a Nine Inch Nails song. Part of the reason I'm so excited to tell you about Eugene Debs is that I didn't learn much about him growing up. The only thing I knew about him for a long time was that he ran for president from jail. Fourth graders in Indiana are required to do a famous Hoosier project. Nobody ever did Debs. He wasn't even on the list. I did Wilbur Wright, and both my sisters did John Mellencamp. Public education hurts so good. So why didn't we learn about the Larry Bird of socialism in school? Because they don't teach him. You see, my home state is Republican red, not socialist red. It's why my seventh grade science teacher had to give a 15 minute disclaimer before teaching the Big Bang. The Indiana Historical Society wrote a blog post about Hoosiers who ran for presidents a few years ago. Here's what it says after a long anecdote about people rolling a ball to Benjamin Harrison's house. The next time a Hoosier vowed for the office of president was in 1900. Terre Haute native Eugene B. Debs was the Socialist Party candidate for the president five times between 1900 and 1920. His last presidential run in 1920 was conducted from prison, where he received 913,693 votes, the most votes ever for a Socialist Party candidate. That's it. They spend more time on Wendell Wilkie. The Midwest used to be a hotbed for progressive politics. The region is dotted with former utopian colonies. New Harmony, Indiana, the Bishop Hill Commune in Illinois, Bethel, Missouri. Milwaukee had three socialist mayors, and Wisconsin, Joe McCarthy's home state, had the first socialist congressman. We were the home to rough hands and broad shoulders, and we valued working people. But 100 years of plutocratic propaganda have convinced us that the worst thing you can be is lower class. Far better to be a temporarily embarrassed millionaire living in a trailer than a factory worker with a union card. In Indiana, like the rest of the Rust Belt, it's meant cyclical poverty, addiction, and crime. It's a tragedy worthy of a great poet. Unfortunately, we only have John Mellencamp, who said, and there's winners and there's losers. But they ain't no big deal, because the simple man, baby, pays for thrills. The bills, the pills that kill. That's not bad coming from the guy who wrote Jack and Diane. But ain't that America? I know this is coming across as heavy-handed and sad. It was a Tommy monologue. What did you expect? I'm just saying, it's easy to get numb. The night Donald Trump got elected, I got blitzed out of my mind. I gave up something Debs never did. I was hoping the world wouldn't be there when I woke up. But it was. It was a Wednesday, the worst possible day to wake up on. Elections should be held on Thursday. Even if you lose, you get the weekend. My roommate and I used to doodle on our walls in Logan Square. That morning, I wrote, in huge block letters, a quote from Eugene Debs. He said it before they took him to prison, after he declared kinship with all living things. I wrote it so that seeing it every day would keep me from giving up or looking away when men who looked like me inflicted violence on everybody else. It goes like this. While there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. And while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. I need to live up to that. In the meantime, here's a song.
name is Eugene Debs. He's a hero for the ages. Working for the union. He's gonna bargain for fair wages. Cause he knows that there'd be violence if that evil George Pullman wins. I know that he can beat them. Oh, Eugene Debs, they think the dream's dead. But the labor engine is still full steam ahead. Eugene Debs, they think the dream's dead But the labor engine Is still full steam ahead The sick attorney general He's an overblown complainer Send the army to help the owners they keep him on retainer and he knows that revolution is coming if Eugene Debs wins I still think we could beat them oh Eugene Debs they think the dream's dead but the labor engine is still full steam ahead. Eugene Debs, they think the dream's dead. But the labor engine is still full steam ahead. Eugene Debs. Coming up next, the losers of the 20th century. Thomas Dewey. Adlai Stevenson, and Ross Perot. Come back to your local podcast purveyor for part two of Even the Losers. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bacola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on Simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque, join us on the Trident Network, and listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.